All right, we have a real privilege this morning. Uh, my dear friend, Brandon Dupre, is going to be bringing the word to us here this morning. So Brandon, come on up, wherever you are, there he is. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. So if you guys have a Bible, feel free to open it up to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some of these Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Feel free to take that home as our gift to you. Uh, if you want to look in that uh, Bible there, we're going to be on page 980. We're going to be in Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26. And just real quick before we stand and read the passage, uh, Brandon, he is uh, one of our interns here. He's a, he's a dear brother in the Lord, and he has a passion for not only Jesus, but also his word. He's been working really hard over this text, and uh, he's been working so hard that he tattooed one of the verses here on his body, maybe this week, maybe last year. I'll let you guys decide that, but... Uh, Brandon, we're excited. Thanks for uh, your labors in the Lord um, and over the Word here this week. So if you guys would please stand as I read Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart. And be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as uh, Christmas has passed us, the Advent season, we are grateful for an opportunity to continue to gather, uh, to continue to have a weekly rhythm, to come together as your people, to sing songs to the glory of Christ, as well as hear from his word. And Lord, we thank you for the word that is preached week in and week out. And I just pray, would you give my brother Brandon here an extra measure of grace? Lord, I pray that you would be preparing our hearts and stirring in our hearts, and would we respond to your word uh, with faith and a desire to live for the fame of your name all the more. So Lord, thanks for the opportunity here this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Happy New Year's Eve's Eve, and with New Year's Eve on the horizon tomorrow, how can we not at least talk about resolutions to some extent? So how many of you in here have at least one resolution set for 2019? Go ahead and raise your hands. Maybe you're still thinking about it, procrastinating a little bit. What do you guys think some of the most popular resolutions were in 2018? Go ahead and shout them out. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Yeah? Make more money? money. Yep. Well, according to a YouGov poll, the top seven most popular resolutions in 2018 were these seven in order. Eat healthier, get more exercise, save more money, focus on self-care, read more, make new friends, and learn a new skill. Pretty solid choices, I would say. 
And when we set resolutions, when we set goals, they influence and they shape our actions. They shape how we live on a day-to-day basis. And the reason this is, the reason our goals influence how we live is because we hold those goals, or rather, the expected outcome of those goals so dear to us. The more we treasure something, the more it's going to impact and influence our actions. And the inverse is also true. The less we treasure something, the less we value something, the less it's going to impact our day-to-day life. And we'll see that this is the case here for Paul in our passage today. Our passage is going to allow us to consider what we treasure and what we hold as most valuable. Because the reality is, is we often tend to not see Christ as our treasure, and because of that, it is reflected in the way that we live life. So what I want us to take away from this morning is this. When we see Christ as our treasure, we will magnify him in our living and our dying. When we see Christ as our treasure, we will magnify him in our living and in our dying. So to give you a preview of where we're headed, I've broken out our passage today into three main points. The first main point is, when we see Christ as our treasure, he will shape our hopes and expectations. And that'll cover verses 19 and 20. Our second main point will be, when we see Christ as our treasure, he will shape our living and our dying. Verse 21. And our third main point will be, when we see Christ as our treasure, he will shape our affections for others. Verses 22 through 26. So before we dive into our first main point, let me briefly set the stage with some context around the letter to the Philippians. Paul is the author, and he is likely writing from prison in Rome. He has undergone severe beatings, he's been in prison multiple times, he's about to be put on trial, and death could be imminent. Yet in all of this, he is rejoicing. He is rejoicing because he gets to honor Christ through it, and because of it, the gospel is going forth and advancing. And if Paul is writing this from Rome, he likely founded this church in Philippi about 10 years prior, and you could read about that in Acts chapter 16. Paul understands that he will likely die soon, and he wants to send a letter of encouragement and of joy to this church. This church is very near and dear to Paul, so this is a very personal letter for him. They continue to support him and remain faithful to him in the midst of his imprisonments. Paul wants to let this church know that he has received their gift and that Epaphroditus had recovered from a severe illness, and he's sending him back to the church. Paul's aim in this letter is the progress and joy in the faith of the Philippian church. Joy is a very central theme to this letter. So let's go ahead and dive into our first main points. When we see Christ as our treasure, he will shape our hopes and expectations. And again, this covers verse 19 and 20. And to more fully understand our passage at hand today, we need to understand some of the context that immediately precedes this verse in verses 12 through 18. Paul is speaking about how some people are preaching Christ out of a genuine love, but how other people are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition and with intentions of harming Paul. Paul doesn't believe that it's a false gospel necessarily, but just that their intentions and their motivation in preaching it is not sincere and not pure. But either way, Paul says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So we see Paul is finding joy in the midst of his circumstances, in the midst of his sorrows, because the gospel is going forth, and it's advancing. Paul finishes saying that I will rejoice, and then he starts a new thought by saying, and yes, I will rejoice more, and he gives us more support for his rejoicing. So what we can take from this is Paul is in prison, about to be put on trial, death is imminent, yet he's still finding joy in the midst of all of these circumstances. And that makes me wonder, how often can we find joy 
in the midst of hardships and trials. We tend to think of sorrow and joy as mutually exclusive. We can't have them both at the same time. But yet we know from Paul that we can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We often let our circumstances dictate our joy. But joy is not circumstantial when we have it in Christ. So now in verse 19, the start of our passage today, we get a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on with Paul. He says, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So you may wonder, is this deliverance a deliverance from prison? And it could likely be that, but it could also mean an ultimate deliverance, a deliverance in regards to an eternal salvation, a deliverance that would bring him into the presence of Christ, that would bring him into heaven. So Paul knows that he's going to be delivered one way or the other, and in that he takes comfort in his deliverance. And I think we often tend to long for deliverance from certain trials in our life, from certain situations or seasons in our life. That's the reality that we live in a fallen and broken world. So what are you currently walking through this year that you long to be delivered from? What are you eager to leave behind in 2018 as we march into the new year? I think we shouldn't stop praying for an earthly deliverance from these trials or from these circumstances, but I think in those prayers should come a pleading to our Heavenly Father that we would find joy and contentment in the midst of those trials and circumstances. We can take refuge knowing that we will ultimately be delivered one day and be brought into the presence of Jesus. And this hope that we have in our future ultimate deliverance, it'll shape our perspectives in the here and now. We have our hopes set on the living God, and our confidence in a future ultimate deliverance will color and shape the way we navigate through life and through trials and tribulations. So if we notice in this passage, Paul is relying on prayers from the Philippian church as well as the help of the Holy Spirit. He's relying on prayers so he can continually have a mindset of this deliverance and a mindset of courage that he can keep honoring Christ in any and all circumstances. So it makes me wonder, how often... Do we pray for other people's joy? Or how often do we pray for others' courage? We may fall into the trap of thinking that we need not to pray for other people because they seem like they have it all together. We may even thought that about Paul. You know, he's an apostle. He's super holy. We don't need to pray for him. He's always rejoicing. But the prayers of the Philippians were exactly the means by which Paul could continue to rejoice. Or another way to think about this is how often do you ask others for prayer? How often do you ask others for prayer? Paul, in his various letters and writings, is always asking the churches for prayer. But that's hard. Asking for prayer is hard. It takes vulnerability. It takes honesty. It's an act of humility. But it's also a vital component of our growth as Christians. I know, for me, asking for prayer is not natural, So it's a goal of mine in 2019 to come humbly before others and ask for prayer more frequently. So let us reflect on our prayer life and make sure we're not neglecting certain people from our prayers and that we are humbly coming before others with our prayer requests. All right, so let's look at verse 20. It says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but with full courage Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. It's Paul's genuine desire that he will honor Christ. It's his eager expectation. It's his hope, his longing, his passion. You could say it's his New Year's resolution. 
He doesn't want to be at all ashamed in any way, but he wants sufficient courage to keep honoring Christ in all of his circumstances. And so it's helpful for us to understand what that word honor means so we can fully grasp what Paul means by his hopes and expectations. So that word honor could be to value, to treasure, to exalt, to glorify. It could also be translated to magnify. So in this sense, Paul wants Jesus to appear glorious. He wants all the glory and all the honor and all the praise to be aimed at Christ. He wants others to see Christ's beauty and his excellence and his majesty. So the question isn't whether we all have hopes or expectations or goals. The question is, what are those goals? And a better question is, is what's driving those goals? What's behind those goals? So I want you to think back to when you were a child and what your hopes were for when you were growing up. What did you want to be when you grow up? Was it a firefighter? Was it a cowboy, an astronaut, a dancer, a football player? Was it a financial analyst? <laughs> what about now? What are your current hopes, your current longings, your current goals? Is it for higher pay, more flexibility in your job, restored and renewed relationships? Is it to exercise more, to lose more weight? Or with New Year's on the horizon tomorrow, maybe you're reminded of your longing to share that midnight kiss with someone special. What are your current longings? And many of these aren't bad desires to have, but what I think is that we often tend to lack having a Christ-honoring and exalting mindset in the midst of our goal setting. So what role does Christ play in your current goals and your current longings? What we see from Paul is that his greatest hope, his greatest expectation, is that whether he lives or whether he dies, that Christ would be honored and magnified. If he's freed from prison, he's going to continue to honor Christ in whatever his next pursuits will be. So let's examine ourselves and examine our hopes and our expectations this next year. And as we think through them, let us ask ourselves, how will this honor Christ? How will this point others to Christ's greatness and his excellence? When setting New Year's resolutions, there's wisdom in looking back over the past year and seeing where the Lord has led you. The ups and the downs, the hilltops and the valleys, the biggest areas of growth, and also the biggest areas of failure and of sin. What were some longings that you may have had in 2018 where Christ was not central? For me, I had goals this year to adventure more, to get out and explore more, to hike, to camp more. And it's not a bad desire in itself. But as I reflected upon those goals, I could tell that the reason I had that is because I had a lack of contentment in my day-to-day life. I also feared missing out on experiences. And upon even further reflection, I could look back and say that I actually enjoyed being viewed as someone who was active, who was outdoorsy, who was adventurous. So having a Christ-honoring mindset with that same goal that I had may have taken this shape. I want to explore more because I want to worship God through the means of his beautiful creation, and I want to share those experiences with others so I can point them back to the creator of those things. Being in finance, I know that we can't just dwell on the past. We need to take what we've learned, the data that's there, and use them to inform and influence how we plan for the future. So in this sense, after self-reflection, what are some of the biggest areas that you want to grow next year? Where are those sin areas that you still need to kill? Is it jealousy, 
lust, bitterness, anger, frustration, selfishness? Where do you need to kill sin next year? And after you know where you've come this year, you can start to formulate where you want to be heading next year. So what are you hoping for, and how is that going to honor Christ? Let this passage mold and shape your hopes and expectations. Spend time in prayer and bring those before the Lord, and view 2019 with a Christ-honoring lens that will color and shape how you live life next year. Let's transition to our second main point. When we see Christ as our treasure, he will shape our living and our dying. And we'll dial in on verse 21, which says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So if you look, verse 21 begins with that word for. And that word for links and connects verses 20 and 21 together. Paul is going to honor Christ, whether by life or by death, and that's supported then by his living as Christ and his dying as gain. To live as Christ means Paul desires to magnify Christ through his life in everything that he does. He longs for others to experience Christ as their treasure, as their joy. But for Paul, and for all of us as well, in order to have this objective, we first need to see Christ as our treasure. We need to see and savor Christ's magnificence and his glory and see that he is worthy to be praised. And only then will that be reflected in how we live life. So do you see Christ as the most valuable thing in your life, as the most precious thing in your life? as better than all things. There is a a parable in Matthew 13 that says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which which a man found and covered. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When you experience Christ as your greatest treasure, your life will reflect that. Where your treasure is, there is where your heart is. But to see Christ as our treasure, we need to see him as our Savior. And to see Christ as our Savior, we need to see ourselves how we truly are, sinners in need of a Savior. We need to grasp the depth of our sinfulness, how our actions, how our motives are tainted with selfish desires, with selfish ambitions. And when we view ourselves in light of a holy and perfect God, we see how far we fall short of his glory and his perfection. How can the imperfect be reconciled to the perfect? How can the righteous dwell in the unrighteous? How can holiness dwell with unholiness? They're not compatible. But God the Father, in his love for us, sent Jesus to live the life that we fail to live, to die in our place in order to bring us to be reconciled to God, that we may be made righteous. Jesus died in our place as our substitute to satisfy the justice that was due because of our sinfulness. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead it shows his victory over death. And that same victory over death is extended to you and I through our repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And when the reality of this hits us, that's when we begin to treasure Christ. So come behold who Christ is, what he has done for you in love. He is the true and unending source of joy. We know that joy is a central theme in this letter to Philippians. Paul, in just four short chapters, uses the word rejoice eight times and the word joy five times. Paul is clearly resolved to fight for our joy, to help us grow in our joy. John Piper paints a helpful illustration of what it means to magnify Christ. 
And he relates it to a telescope and a microscope. So what do each of these instruments do? Well, here's what he has to say. The word magnify can be used in two different senses. It can mean make something appear greater than it is, as with a microscope or magnifying glass, or it can mean make something that may seem small or insignificant appear to be as great as it really is. There are two kinds of magnifying, microscope magnifying and telescope magnifying. The one makes a small thing look bigger than it is, and the other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. End quote. So our aim in magnifying and honoring Jesus is to make him look as great as he really is. And for that to happen, we need to treasure Christ above all things. So let's look at the second half of verse 21. To die is gain. Do you consider dying as gain, as a good thing? Why or why not? Why does Paul consider dying as gain? Well, if we look at verse 23, we can see his reasoning. He says, To depart and be with Christ is far better. Being in the full presence of Jesus is far better than living in a fallen and broken world. Jesus had conquered death, and now so can we. Because of his love, because of what he has accomplished, we can consider death as gain. For the Christian, to die means to experience more of Jesus. And more of Jesus is the best thing we can have. So following that logic, we can say, yes, to die is gain. We want more of Christ because in his presence there is fullness of joy. There is no more pain. There is no more hardship. No more tears. No more sorrows. We long to be in the everlasting kingdom of God. In the unhindered presence and fellowship with God the Father. But why is it hard for us to consider dying as a good thing? Death takes away everything that we have in this life. Death takes away everything that we have in this life except for Christ. I think we tend to fear death because we hold on too tightly to the things in this life. We see the things in our lives as functionally better than Jesus. And because of that, it's hard for us to consider dying as a good thing. The reality is, is when we die, we're going to leave everything behind. The only thing we have in death is Jesus. But that is truly the difference maker. So what are you holding on to too tightly in this life? What do you have a hard time letting go of? It's a struggle, I get it, to hold out, hold out open palms and to hold things loosely. We tend to be really close-fisted with the things in our life. And that's because we tend to think that our plan is the best plan, right? But our perspectives are narrow in the grand scheme of things. We only see a few pieces to a billion-piece puzzle. But we can trust that the Lord is putting the pieces together. And because of that, we can hold on to the things in this life loosely, knowing that whether the Lord takes those things from us or takes us from this world, it's a part of a beautiful design. And in death, we can see that beautiful design. We get to see the full picture. We can see that the pieces fell into just the right place at just the right time with great precision and great intention. So what are you holding on to too tightly? Is it academic success? Finding the right job with great pay? Is it your passion to travel and adventure and explore? Is it finding that right person to marry? When we hold these things too tightly, 
we begin to see death as a bad thing because it will take us away from pursuing those things. But Jesus is better than that. He is better than anything this life has to offer. He is the one who will satisfy you to the fullest extent that is possible. And through death, we find our ultimate deliverance. Unending joy awaits us in death as a Christian. And when this is our understanding, our perspective, we can say with Paul, yes, yes, to die is gain. We can say, hey, guess what? If I die, that's okay, because I get to go be with Jesus, and that's far better than anything that this life has to offer. And when we do that, Christ is honored and he's magnified. When we consider it gain, it tells the world around us that Christ is superior. It points others to Christ. And in our dying, the Lord is, is magnified. He is honored. We've all probably seen those shirts or those stickers that say, blank is life, hockey is life, football is life, soccer is life, volleyball is life, traveling is life. And what these taglines are trying to get across is that everything we do revolves around that thing. So for me, there was a season in my life that I was preparing for a physique competition. And you could hold your laughter till the end for that one. So I could say that fitness was life. The gym was life. My schedule entirely revolved around that goal. I had tailored workouts to help me grow in certain areas. I was in the, in the gym one or two times a day for months on end. My diet was rigorous. It was strict. Carbs were the enemy. Cardio was king. And during these months, I neglected my friendships because of the inconvenience that it placed on me achieving this goal. Enjoying time with others was put on the sidelines so that I could focus on achieving this goal. Preparing to get on stage for this physique competition consumed my day-to-day living. It was the most central thing to my life. And I could tell you that I was not Christ-exalting. So perhaps for you, it might not be as extreme as this example, but think through the things in your life that are the most central, that you focus on the most. So fill in the blank for whatever that is for you. For Paul... His living means Christ will be the most central thing in his life. He desires that everything he will do will be around honoring Christ, advancing the gospel, knowing Jesus, and making Jesus known to the world around him. So, by way of application, I think we need to reflect on the riches of the gospel so that we can see and savor Christ as our treasure. Reflect on the goodness of the Lord his faithfulness to you this year. Reflect on the mercy and the grace which he has lavished upon you. Reflect on the forgiveness that's been freely extended to you. As far as the east is from the west, so far as your transgressions removed from you. Although your sins are scarlet, they are made white as snow. The sin that tainted you is removed through the blood of Jesus. So as you treasure Christ, ask yourselves, How can I most magnify the Lord in my life in 2019? How can I live in such a way that proclaims that Christ is excellent, that he is great, that he is worth pursuing and following? Because the truth is, we are all going to have to give an account of our lives to our maker one day. On that last day, we will in awe stand before the glorious throne and before our maker, before our creator, and we will have to give an account for our lives. And he may very well ask, what did you live for? What was your life marked by? What did you die for? 
And if your living isn't Christ, then your dying is certainly not going to be a gain. If your living isn't Christ, then the eternity that will follow will be an absolute isolation of Jesus. If Christ isn't central to your life now, he's not even going to be in the peripherals in the life that's to come after death. And that's a path of darkness and a void of joy that you do not want to venture down. So are you ready to give an account for your life? Are you ready to stand before the Creator and give an account? From the day that I heard and understood this passage, it has gripped my life. I have realized that I am not my own, that I've been bought with a price, that I have been redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus. And because of his great love for me, I'm going to live for the Lord. I'm going to live to glorify the Lord. This verse has had a significant impact on me. So much so, as Daniel mentioned, I even got it tattooed on my body. So maybe that's the application for us, is to all go out and get that tattoo. But I want to be reminded each and every day that Christ is glorious, and if I'm going to live in the flesh, I'm going to live for him. All right, let's go ahead and transition to our last main point. When we see Christ as our treasure, he will shape our affections for others. Verses 22 through 26. And let's go ahead and read them again so that we can be reminded. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your accounts. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul is torn in two directions here. We've already discussed how he longs to depart and be with Christ because that's a lot better. But we see he's torn because to continue living is more beneficial for the Philippians. So why is that? Why is it more beneficial for Paul to remain in the flesh and to keep living for the Philippians. Well, if you look with me at the end of verse 25, it says, for their progress and joy in the faith. Paul is convinced of this, that it is better for others that he stay. He is convinced that the welfare and the well-being of others is more important and more significant than his own wants and desires. He's giving us a model to follow here. He is evaluating his circumstances and his alternatives based on the well-being of others rather than his own well-being. D.A. Carson helpfully comments in this passage. He says this, Often we are tempted to evaluate alternatives by thinking through what seems best for us. Guilty. I know that's true of me. When I'm thinking through decisions and alternatives, I usually evaluate based on what's best for me. How is this going to set me up the best in the future? But that's not Paul's logic, and that certainly wasn't Jesus' logic either. In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul challenges us, he charges us to count others as more significant than yourselves. And then he goes on to give us the perfect model to follow, which is Jesus. Christ emptied himself of his status and his privileges to take on the form of a lowly servant in order that he can serve. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' evaluation of his circumstances were directly tied to our well-being. 
So what does it look like for Paul to help the Philippians grow in their progress and joy in the faith? Well, back in verse 22, Paul says if he's to keep on living in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for him. So what does that mean? What does fruitful labor mean? And I think in this context, I think it means helping others see Christ as supremely valuable and helping others grow in finding their joy and their treasure in Christ. You see, Paul finds joy when he sees others finding joy in Christ. He spends his time laboring hard for the progress of others in the faith, of his fellow brothers and sisters. So how have you used your time in 2018? Was it used to build others up? Was it used to help others see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Most of you know that I'm a finance nerd, and I know some of you in here as well. Uh, And I love data and graphs and charts. And so an exercise that I've done that's helpful is I'll write down what a typical week looks like for me, from work to working out to meals to classes to life group to time with people. I take that all and I throw it into a pie chart. So I can start to see how my time is being allocated, so I can start to see how much time is already committed, what's flexible, and what's margin, or what's free time. Each slice of the pie represents another activity in my week and as a percentage of the whole total pie. And so you might not be following along, so I have a slide to help me illustrate this. (laughs) Please don't make fun of my nerdiness too much in here. But for example, work represents 30% of my week, while 13% of my week, or 22 hours, is margin or flexible time. So this exercise, it can help me to think through how I allocate my time in fruitful ways. Now don't get me wrong, do everything to the glory of God. Whether you work a desk job, work on a job site, or you're pumping iron at the gym, do it all to the glory of God. But what I'm trying to get at here is to find time in your schedule that will enable you to directly invest in people in your lives and help them in their progress and joy in the faith. And as a disclaimer, I don't always do that, and I certainly don't always follow through with that. And I don't expect you to make a pie chart. I don't expect you to be that nerdy. But I do want you to think through the lens of fruitful labor, how you're using your time. It matters. So who in your life could you invest more time into? What does your schedule look like? What are your priorities in 2019? Are there some unproductive habits that you could lessen to make more room to pour into the lives of those around you. The gospel gives us a sense of direction. It gives us a mission, an objective. And I know it can be hard. It can be difficult to invest in others. It can be uncomfortable. It can be awkward. It certainly takes time. It can be hard work. It's toilsome. But if we understand the treasure that is ours in Christ, our inclination should be to help others have that same treasure and increase their valuing of that treasure. So use this new year to reevaluate priorities and time. What time can be repurposed to serve a bigger and a greater need? What things could be eliminated or reduced? Assuming eight hours of sleep a night, nine hours of work a day, that still leaves 49 hours remaining in the week. So how do you want to allocate that time next year? How is your Netflix consumption? How is your sports center intake? 
a personally convicting one is how is your Instagram usage? We are all called to make disciples. We are called to fruitful labor. Every moment here on earth, it does matter. We do not know when the Lord is going to call us home. And if we're going to remain on living, we should have a fiery passion to continue to know Jesus and to make him known to those around us. This was Paul's motivation. Let it also be our motivation. Let us be good stewards of the time that the Lord has allotted to us. Because we can be confident that when honoring Christ as our mindset and our passion, there's no labor or work that we can do that will be in vain. Every day is significant. We can make eternal impacts each and every day as we labor for the progress and joy in the faith of those around us. But remember, to continue to fuel this type of work, this type of labor, we need to be cherishing and treasuring Christ above all things, as are all in all. When we find our joy in Christ, this produces a grace-fueled work ethic. And when the Lord does call us home, and we enter into the full and everlasting joy of our master, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servants. You all know the saying, new year, new me, and that's great and all, so long as we're having a gospel lens of making disciples in focus. Maybe we could slightly adjust that tagline. In 1 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Then Paul goes on to say that we are ambassadors for Christ. So in light of this, maybe we can change this tagline to be new year, new creation in Christ. A little cheesy, I know. But I think it can help us get into the right framework and the right mindsets. So let's look at this next year through the lens of an ambassador for Christ. The lens which declares Christ redeemed me. He brought me from darkness into light. The lens which echoes Galatians 2.20, which says, I am in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And when we declare this truth, it will shape our affections for others, and it will shape our pursuit of others. So as we close our time together today, I want to circle back to how we started talking about New Year's resolutions. Resolution is the noun form of the verb resolve, which means to come to a definite decision about something. To come to a definite decision about something. Jonathan Edwards, who was a Puritan theologian in the 1700s, he said this about his resolutions. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. End quote. So as we think through the new year and what it will bring for us, let our starting place be what God has already done for us through Christ. And as we day in and day out treasure Christ above all things, it will shape how we live in 2019. So fix your eyes on the author of life, the one who in love gave himself for you. Resolved to 
to have Christ-centered hopes and expectations, resolved to relinquish my control and not hold too firmly to the things in this life, resolved to count others as more significant to myself, resolved to come humbly before others and ask for prayer, resolved to be a good steward of the time the Lord has allotted me, resolved to labor relentlessly for the progress and the joy and the faith of those around me, resolved to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be gathered here this morning as your people, Lord, and we praise you for your word that is living and is active, and it is sharper than any double-edged sword, Lord, and I pray that we would meditate on these truths from your word today, and that ultimately we would come to treasure you more and more next year, Lord. I pray that you would shape how we live, you would shape our goal setting, our expectations, our hopes. I pray that each and every one of us could come to value you as our ultimate treasure, Jesus. So thank you for your word. Thank you for these people. I pray that we would continue to seek to know you, Jesus, and to make you known to the world around us who so desperately needs it. In Christ's precious and victorious name we pray. Amen.